Welcome to Failing Forward. Randy, can you please introduce yourself for our audience? Hi, everyone. My name is Randy Viegas. I'm currently a PhD candidate at the University of California, Santa Cruz, uh, with a designated emphasis in Latin American and Latino studies, and I'm in the politics department there. Tell us about the project you're working on. My project is really centered around political participation of youth from mixed status families, specifically within the Central Valley region of California. For those of you listening at home that don't know, a mixed status family, uh, at least in the way I'm defining it, refers to a household in which one or more persons living in the household are undocumented, uh, meaning that they don't have legal status or some sort of temporary status. And so, you know, that, that can be sort of a variety of different situations. Uh, typically, you know, people might think of a household in which, you know, a mother and father might be undocumented and their children might be a mix of U.S. born citizens or DACA recipients or might also be undocumented themselves. My project really looks at how are youth participating or not participating in things like local governance, uh, in their communities, in engaging civically in their communities, and how is this affected both by coming from a mixed status family and by the particular context that, you know, youth are living in, in, in my case, the Central Valley, which is very, very unique. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what makes it unique. What are some of those factors that you think are very different? The Central Valley, as I'm referring to it, refers to the Central San Joaquin Valley located in California, from about as far south as you know Bakersfield, California, to as far north as Stockton, California. When I say California, it's a, it's a very different picture than what most people might think of. You know, Typically, people might think of the beach, uh, places like Los Angeles, San Francisco, Santa Cruz, Usually there's this big depiction of very democratic California, but the Central Valley is sort of the polar opposite in many ways. It tends to be dominated by a sort of more uh, rightward leaning conservative context, especially at the local level. We don't have any beaches. We have lots of agricultural fields. Uh, the oil industry and agriculture industries tend to dominate a, a lot of local economies in counties like Kern, Fresno, Merced, etc. And so it's, it's a very different picture from what uh, most folks might think of when they think of California. And it's within this particular context that I'm trying to understand how youth are being shaped to either engage in their communities or, or not to engage in their communities uh, for, for various different reasons. Talk about why you want to be on the Failing Forward podcast. What is it that has gone wrong or that you think counts as a failure in this context? The biggest sort of failure on everybody's mind right now is COVID-19, right? And the way it's impacted everybody's day-to-day -day lives, and particularly for me. So what went wrong was I, I had to shift a lot of different things within this project. You know, I, I do uh, semi-structured interviews with youth, um, focus groups, participant observations, a lot of things that we've had to adapt to. And it's been amazing to see how youth have adapted to these circumstances and particularly youth organizers in the area. For example, there is an immigrant detention center in Bakersfield, California called the Mesa Verde Detention Center. Obviously with COVID-19, the possibility for big rallies and, and marches, you know, we've still had some of those go on, particularly in relation to the Black Lives Matter protests, but people have really had to adapt their strategies in terms of, you know, how do we safely bring people together for this cause? And that can range, you know, from a lot of different things. For example, I you know, witnessed a car caravan happening where people were honking their horns outside of the prison to call attention to this issue. People creating car caravans with posters and signs, virtual press conferences and, and things like that. And so it's really been amazing to see how we're learning you know, to adapt under these circumstances and how youth are, are engaging with you know, everything going on. It's, it's a lot to be learned from. Overall, I think one of the one of the biggest failures I've been recognizing. It's also just our, our government's response, you know, both local, statewide, and, and federally. We've had a lot of different programs, for example, through various coronavirus relief acts. Unfortunately, you know, especially talking to the youth um, that I've spoken to, 
a lot of these youth are left out and their families are left out of these programs. You know, there's no COVID-19 relief check for their parents because they're undocumented. Many of them themselves don't qualify, you know, for any sort of relief. When it comes to undocumented business owners, right, and, and local vendors and things like that, there's they don't qualify for things like the Paycheck Protection Program. And so many of these youth's lives and many of these families' lives, it's almost as if the government has turned their back to them in terms of not offering that relief or aid. You know, I remember speaking to one youth, you know, being very excited about the state of California, for example, putting out coronavirus relief funds specifically for undocumented families, but then trying to call in to that, that one number to their specific organization and just being blocked or busy the entire day. And so it, it's a very big failure on, on, on a part of you know, our governments and, and their response to the situation, particularly for our most vulnerable communities. If you could do this all over again from the beginning, if you could design your project again, what would you do differently? I would definitely try to anticipate, right, if I could, uh, everything going on in the world in terms of the pandemic and things like that. But I think I would also plan for more time and to be conscious and to recognize the multiple responsibilities of, of youth participants within my study, you know, whether that's family responsibilities, school responsibilities, and, and just responsibilities that have emerged as a result of COVID-19, right? It's it's hard to say, can you spare a few minutes of your time to, to talk to me when a youth says, well, actually, no, I've, I've got to get to work or I've got to watch over my sibling. And so I can't really do that right now. But I think also just recognizing and, and um, one of the things I've been trying to learn is, is taking a step backwards and, and really allowing youth to put forth, you know, some of their, their solutions and their, their grievances and their stories that really help me understand how they're participating in their communities. What would you do differently since the pandemic started? So it's often very easy to say, well, what I would have done is anticipate the pandemic was going to happen <laughs> at all. I think all of us wish we could have done that. Are there any things you would do differently once you've started to adapt to the situation as it exists? I think I would have tried to reach out to more organizations in terms of trying to sit in on a few more sort of virtual meetings because, you know, like I said, things have been adapting, but in all reality, things haven't stopped. And so it, it's been amazing to see, you know, how folks are still communicating and organizing around particular issues and participating virtually. Uh, and so if I could change one thing, I think I would have made a better attempt to sit in on a bit more of these sort of meetings, to be a part of these spaces, you know, of course, with, with permission of the youth and of particular organizers. I think that would have been more beneficial looking back and certainly looking forward as this project is sort of part of my larger dissertation project, learning from that mistake. And so learning from that, I think going forward, I'm just going to um, pay a lot more attention to these spaces and recognize that there's a lot to be learned from just sitting back and, and observing and, and really taking in how youth are responding to this moment, how they're creating change in their communities and how they're remaining resilient in the face of all this adversity. One of the things we're seeing a lot in CARES work is that having invested in relationships and in networks ahead of COVID has made it easier and faster for us to respond in the moment of COVID. And that's both in terms of our program implementation, but also in terms of our research and our ability to find out what's happening on the ground. Is that something you also see in your work? Yeah, absolutely. I think investing in these local organizations and these local groups, I think is of particular importance because in all reality, they're the ones who are on the ground organizing day to day and communicating effectively with you know residents, with community members. I think one of the most amazing things that I uh, learned more about, you know, over the course of this project was this huge battle that happened in the city of McFarland, where the city was essentially trying to expand their detention centers with a private immig immigrant detention center group named the Geo Corporation. And really, you know, while 
it erupted into nationwide coverage from the New York Times and LA Times and you know all these other outlets. It was really the, those grassroots organizers on the ground who were knocking on the doors of residents of McFarland and say, hey, come on out to the city council meeting. Please give your voice to public comment. This is something that's very important to the community. And oftentimes, these groups themselves are operating on, operating under very limited budgets uh, and you know financial constraints. And so, I, I think truly investing and building the relationships with these grassroots on the ground organizing groups is is crucial in terms of addressing a lot of the issues that you mentioned, even coming up with COVID, but particularly the long-lasting issues that we see affecting these communities, like uh, immigration reform, wealth inequality, healthcare, among others. Is there anything that you would recommend in terms of how to become more adaptable, how to be able to react to something as massive as the COVID pandemic happening in the middle of your PhD research project? What I would recommend most, I think, to, you know, to care to, to other groups is just really to listen to youth voice. I think uh, oftentimes we, as we get older and we, we grow and, you know, we get this expertise, you know, whether that's getting a degree from a university or job experience, uh, or working with, you know, nonprofit groups, oftentimes we forget that, you know, youth are being impacted in, in, in so many uh, different ways. And oftentimes youth have ideas and, and solutions um, that they want to put forward. And so I think incorporating youth voice, uh, you know, at every table, at every decision-making table, listening to youth organizing groups and community-based organizations directly impacted uh, in those communities, which I think, you know, CARE does very well. Uh, in terms of their international work. Duplicating that right here in the United States where we see so many issues would be great, but simply, you know, always questioning at the end of the day, you know, when, when decisions are being made, when we're focusing on particular issues, make sure that we're incorporating that youth voice within that conversation and within these discussions to ensure that we're adequately addressing some of these problems that, you know, not only affect adults and families, but those young people who are gonna be growing up in these communities, who are gonna be serving these communities, uh, we're going to be there after, you know, the, the project or the campaign is done. Even within my own experience as an organizer and, and a journalist, uh, before I started graduate school, I think there's a bit of not necessarily research fatigue, though that, that could be a possibility as well. But I think there's a lot to be learned from sort of those, those flyover attempts those drive-by interactions, right, where we bring in external funders, groups, and people. I think there's a lot to be said about looking at who's already there, who's already working on those solutions, and, and how can we help better support them. One of the things that you mentioned is about that, needing to listen to the voice of youth. What different about listening to youth than trying to talk to adults? What are some of those differences that you see? Uh, it's funny that you asked that. I think one of the greatest things about my work so far is that I think youth are, are very brutally honest, whether that's, you know, telling you this is not working, this is terrible, and this is something that needs to change now, as opposed to somebody who might be sort of more conscious about, you know, do I really want to be this blunt? Do I, you know, am I, am I going to ruffle any feathers? Youth are unapologetic, at least many of the youth that I've spoken to are unapologetic about, you know, where they stand and, and what they think can be done around particular community issues. And so I think that's one thing that makes, you know, youth voice so different from, you know, not having any youth at the table. And I think what is also very unique about having youth voice within these conversations is that, you know, many times we ourselves think about, you know, thinking long term, you know, what's the game plan five years from now, uh, et cetera. But I think truly a lot of these youth have that long term vision even farther ahead of that. You know, they're imagining, you know, unless they're planning on leaving their communities, you know, a lot of these youth are imagining, you know, what, what's this going to look like, you know, not only for me in five to 10 years, but, you know, for my parents who eventually I, I want to retire someday from the fields. What's the future going to look like for my younger sibling who, you know, is thinking about going to college? We might not have that sort of financial resources right now. And so I think they bring both a familiar 
perspective in terms of, you know, thinking about their own families and, and their own intersecting identities, but also thinking forward about the future that they want to see within their community. You mentioned earlier, and you didn't label it as a failure, but I heard it as one, is this idea of the flyover interaction. The parachute, you come in, you do something for a minute, and you leave. And we see that all the time. That's the wrong way to do this kind of thinking. Are there other common failures you see, especially about trying to reach out to youth differently than you might reach out to adults? Crucially, and what many youth also spoke to me about, is also not only engaging youth when it's politically convenient. Some youth would talk about, you know, politicians that would show up at a rally or two or speak Spanish at an event, you know, in order to sort of be there for that photo opportunity. But, you know, when it's not election season and those youth want to talk to those same legislators or officials, they're sort of nowhere to be found or they're unavailable. Building a a sustainable, continuous relationship, you know, with with organizers, with uh, community-based organizations, with youth organizing groups, when it's not election year is crucial. A lot of youth also went beyond that to explain, you know, it's, it's not just about participating through youth voting. You know, I talked to many undocumented youth who have spoken up at town halls, at political forums, who have organized on behalf of their community. And so even though they don't have that power to, to cast a ballot, they're really exercising their power in so many other ways, you know, whether that's a literal on the ground organizing, organizing virtually, especially in, in light of COVID-19, or simply talking to other folks in their community who do have that power to cast a ballot and, you know, and encouraging them to register and, and vote on their behalf or encouraging them to get involved and speak up at a city council or county board of supervisors meeting. That, that's you know, some of the ways we can recognize and, and continue to build ongoing relationships with youth without making them apathetic about politicians only showing up because they want the youth vote or because they want the Latinx vote or because they don't wanna seem like an old out of touch politician, you know, so to speak. And so you know, that's some of the ways we can sort of build those relationships and, and make them sustainable with youth and with communities in, in particular, like the Central Valley. So a lot of what I hear seems like there's huge overlap between the context where CARE does most of our work and the work that you're doing. Is there anything you think that's particular to your context that doesn't really apply or that would be very different in another country or another context? I certainly think a lot of the things resonate in terms of working with other countries. You know, when we look at healthcare rates in the Central Valley, rates of poverty, rates of education, unfortunately, you know, I, I saw in the Atlantic, I think over the summer that four out of the five, you know, worst cities for Latinos obtaining education are in the Central Valley. When you look at the opportunities for education, for healthcare, for access, for, you know, upward mobility, a lot of those pathways are blocked. They're filled with obstacles, and it's very difficult and challenging uh, to live in the Central Valley. I think what's also unique about the context of the Central Valley for, for immigrant families is that there's such precarity, and there's a lot of confusion at times. You know, For example, speaking to a youth in, in Kern County who was talking about, you know, well, my city government you know, says that, like, the sheriff says I'm, that he's non-sanctuary, and that, you know, he's very anti-immigrant, you know, but the state of California itself is, is, claims to be a sanctuary state. But the federal government right now is, you know, wanting to increase enforcement against immigration and taking a very strong anti-immigrant rhetoric and anti-immigrant approach. And so it's hard to know, you know, for, for these families who to turn to and where to go for any sort of resources or help or clarification. And so it's also double sort of compounded, right? This, this local rhetoric where, you know, a lot of folks are seeing their local sheriffs at the border wall with President Trump for photo opportunities. And at the same time, the state of California is, is, is trying to combat against that. And so I just think it, it creates a very confusing and, and chaotic 
space for many families uh, that we, we might not find in, in other countries, depending on their, their own government systems. But uh, I guess that's just one of the beautiful things about federalism is that we can have all these different policies and, and structures going on at the same time. But that might be very confusing for folks who are directly on the ground and directly impacted. Any final thoughts or words of advice you want to make sure really stick with the audience? The original sort of title for my project was, you know, Voices from the Valley of, of Vulnerability, right? And so in my previous conceptualization, I was thinking about how these individuals are, are the most vulnerable, right, in many different ways. And while I recognize that, I also have been reconsidering and rethinking about this idea of vulnerability because in many ways, you know, a lot of these youth who, who spoke to me and, you know, told me they're undocumented and unafraid, uh, or, you know, they're, they're willing to take those risks and speak up on behalf of their families that in reality, um, it's, yes, uh, you know, these families are in a very precarious situation, but in reality, there's a lot of legislators and a lot of folks who might be vulnerable themselves as these youth start to get more involved and as these organizations begin to grow. And so I'm, I'm starting to question, you know, who's really vulnerable here in terms of if youth continue to to grow, to take action, to mobilize and engage their peers. It might not be them being in the vulnerable situation anymore. It might be some of these uh, elected officials, especially as we see demographics change and rates of participation change. I'm very interested to know what's going to happen in just a couple of months, you know, not only at the federal level, but especially here at the local level. And are we going to see things change? Uh, are we going to see things uh, trend in a different direction like the state of California has been doing? 2020 is such a crazy election year in terms of not only a presidential election, but I'm looking at ballot initiatives um, here in California where I don't want to date myself, but you know, Proposition 187 was this, this huge anti-immigrant effort in 1994. And here we are in 2019, 2020, where California has sort of taken a 180 on immigration. And so I'm wondering if Central Valley is going to um, sort of go through a similar shift or whether the sort of conservative leaning uh, environment will continue to reign dominant within the area. Thanks for joining us today, Randy. It was great to have you. Thanks to the audience for listening this week. Stay tuned next time for Learning from Care Brazil and how we can think differently about localization, pilot tests, and what we learn when things go wrong.